Welcome to the All In Remote Podcast, where we believe that companies can unlock their potential, build healthy resilience, and succeed in an increasingly volatile world. We'll explore the new challenges of leadership, best practices for developing culture and trust, and the innovative tools that help make it possible. Here's your host, Kendra Kinnison. For this episode, we're exploring the neuroscience of remote work with Shantae Jovan Taylor, founder of the Optimind Institute. Today, we'll get to dive deeper on Zoom fatigue, whether it's real or perceived, and the techniques for navigating online meetings. Shantae, thanks so much for being here with us. I'm so excited to learn from you. Likewise, Kendra, thank you so much for inviting me. This is such an important topic, and I'm just looking forward to sharing with your audience. Yeah, so let's jump in and answer, I think, the most pressing question on everyone's mind, and then we can work backwards from there. So is it true that Zoom meetings impact our brain differently than in-person or phone conversations? Absolutely, 100% true. (laughs) Now, of course, there's some overlap, of course, because we're still humans dealing with other humans, right? We're still communicating. We're still using the same words. It's not like we're changing up how we do this human experience, but it's a different platform, right? So we're going from the 3D in-person experience to a flat screen 2D experience. So the brain, of course, has to make accommodations and change just with that dynamic. But fatigue is not something that's new, right? In research and psychological studies, we know that Fatigue is real when it comes to certain workforces, right? Social media fatigue, watching too much TV, that can have fatigue on the mind and brain. But Zoom is a whole different element. And it's a relatively new phenomenon because of where we are in time and space and the speed at which collectively we all have to use Zoom. So there is research on it. And I think it's going to be very helpful to continue to do the research as we learn to incorporate Zoom in our everyday type of meeting and workspace. Okay, so that's insightful. I like the way you said it. Our brain has to make accommodations and adjust. So it's just more work for our brains to have that connection over Zoom than it is over other formats. Absolutely. Absolutely. So I could definitely get into the science of it if you'd like, Kendra. <laughs> Let's do. Let's nerd out. Tell us, tell us why that is and what the impacts are. Absolutely. So I want to start by saying, you know, having Zoom and this technology really has us at an advantage at this human time in our era, right? at this most challenging time of our era. So I don't want to bash Zoom, but I want to, you know, talk about both sides of the coin, right? It has allowed companies and workers to transition to work life without really skipping too many beats in our organizations, right? And if you would think about like before the early 2000s or the 1990s, we didn't have access, right, to this type of platform. So it would have looked very differently, right? So it has opened up some doors, of course, and some space and revealed some gaps, right, in our societies and in our actions and what's possible with work life. But we also have to talk about the consequences, 
right? The consequences to our psychology, to our emotions, to our brain functioning. So that's where I come in right now. And you are absolutely right. It takes more effort in a lot of ways to do this Zoom experience, right? And so when you think about people, about 10 million users using Zoom, and then that increase from December 2019 to April 2020, it went up to 300 million people on Zoom, like almost overnight, right? And so there was this collective like shock to systems, to the brain, like what are we even doing, (laughs) right? There's this long exposure time to being on screen. People are not used to being on screen. They're not used to sitting at, you know, maybe they're used to sitting at the desk, but not looking at people (laughs) for long periods of time. And then people felt, okay, to be productive, we got to have more meetings and more meetings. (laughs) So it really started to take its toll. And then When you stack what's going on with the pandemic on top of that, right, we have to factor in those elements. So Zoom fatigue is, I think it's more of an umbrella of things Mm. happening. So Zoom fatigue is one particular aspect of it, but we also have to take in people needing to change their routines, people adding new roles to their lives. Now they're a teacher, right? They're in childcare because, you know, their kids have to be home. Now they're dealing with lots of other distractions. And we know that there were more burdens on women during this time, you know, economic hardships and child rearing. So you have to add all that in, in addition to what is really causing this Zoom fatigue, okay? So let's just talk specifically about Zoom fatigue and we could talk about those elements later if you'd like. But let me tell you a little bit about the brain first (laughs) so that, you know, you could put some of this into perspective. So our brains, everyone has one, hopefully, (laughs) you know, weighs about three pounds and it has about a hundred billion brain cells and it can connect to one to each brain cell can connect to one to 10,000 other brain cells, which means we have like 90 million miles of wiring in our brain, right? And so I'm bringing this up because once you understand and respect the magnitude of what is in our skulls, you can start to appreciate the amount of energy, Mm. resources the brain has to use to do this human experience. So we know that the brain uses up 20% of the total body energy. That's 20% of blood and oxygen, vitamins, minerals, and proteins. All of that stuff (laughs) allows our brains to do all these millions of functions every day, right? And have communication with our body. And that takes a lot of energy and it uses up the most energy of any other organ in the body. Okay. So when we talk about Zoom and we talk about transferring this in-person life to this online life, it, like I said earlier, it shocks the brain and the brain has to adjust. So researchers have found there's really five dimensions that determine how much Zoom fatigue will actually experience, right? So there's the general fatigue, right? And there's what the social aspect that can lead to fatigue. There's the visual aspect that can lead to fatigue. And then there's the motivational aspect that can lead to fatigue. So just to break a few of those down, just in general, yeah, we're always going to have some level of fatigue and it doesn't matter what we really do when it comes to screen time, right? Social, there's a 
everyone has a social battery, <laughs> right? So if you're going from in-person to always doing Zoom meetings and having all these people, then of course your social battery is depending on where it is, but your personality makeup, whether you're an introvert or extrovert, is going to determine how this social engagement on Zoom will cause social fatigue, right? And then of course we have emotional fatigue. Emotional fatigue depends on, well, how well are we able to just manage our emotions, period? Like what's, what was our baseline before, I mean, to this world of Zoom only type of interactions, right? So depending on where you were before the pandemic, it's either going to exacerbate or you might be okay. And that could be where the pandemic you know, as you said, kind of compounds as well, where, as you put it, Zoom fatigue is more of an umbrella that incorporates not just the change in our work, but really the change our whole lives have been uprooted, you know, in the way we move or aren't allowed to move, the way we socialize or aren't allowed to socialize. So that that component in particular seems like, and I like how you broke it down into the different types of fatigue. I think that's really, it almost makes for a good self-assessment. And we can talk about that in a minute, but I think it almost, I like checklists where I can think, okay, what kind of tired am I? You know, as you said, so mm -hmm. the emotional, that could be the one where even things that maybe aren't work-related could help compound that feeling of fatigue. Yes, that was perfectly said because we actually have a whole part of our brain that's just dedicated to emotions, right? The full spectrum of emotions, that threat brain, that fear brain, that anger, that sadness, but also the joy and the love and, you know, those those feel good feelings are also there, right? But we know in neuroscience that the fear and threat brain is five times more sensitive mm. than the reward and joy brain. And that was for survival purposes, right? We wanted to survive. We had to make sure that we paid attention to our threats and our fears so that we can get out of the place that we needed to or avoid a certain person or animal. So our brains are ancient systems. So we're still kind of wired like that, right? And the fear and threat brain, one way to decrease their activity is to have certainty, okay? Mm -hmm. So during this pandemic... That's At the start of it, no one had certainty. <laughs> and we and continue not to have certainty to a degree, right? Good point. So, okay, so we've covered three of the five. So you talked about general fatigue, talked about social fatigue, talked about emotional fatigue. What were the other two categories? Visual and motivational. So visually, when we're in person with talking in person, we naturally will look away in a conversation, right? We'll naturally give ourselves a break from looking the person dead in the eye because first of all, it's weird to do that, you know, but it also, our brain knows to naturally take a break, right? And depend on our peripheral vision, right? Our peripheral cues. And that helps to decrease conversation fatigue. But when we are doing Zoom, we are expected to keep looking in the camera at all times, right? Uh -huh. Because we need to show extra effort, right? That we're paying attention, right? And also not just that, when we are, you know, having these visual cues, we are trying to pick up nonverbal cues more consciously, right? When we're face to face, it's more of an unconscious, intuitive type of response. But it's like everything is 
hyper done in this visual world because you want to make sure that you are showing interest, right? You can't be looking to the side, even though you would do that in person. Maybe you want to glance out the window, but it may look like you're not interested. And then the person who's looking at you is saying, oh, this person is not interested. They're not doing their work. So there's all of these effortful, nonverbal cues that are being read and it's causing cognitive overload, okay? Causing overload of what I call the prefrontal cortex, which is the conscious functioning, executive functioning, and takes up a lot of mental energy. So visual fatigue is real, okay? And then we have the motivational piece that puzzle of fatigue, you know, how motivated are people to get on Zoom, right? If they already have a negative connotation towards Zoom or the platform or talking to people on camera, of course, that's going to also contribute to the Zoom fatigue as well. So that fourth one, that visual, that almost sounds like in my head, it sounds like we're having to perform all the time. You know, whereas maybe we didn't feel the pressure to do that quite so much when we were alone in our, you know, in our offices and not interacting quite so much and not being studied and studying each other quite so much. Absolutely. And I'll add to that when we're in person, we're not looking at ourselves, right? It's almost like we don't even know we exist other than we're talking and we're actually living in our body, right? When you're talking to someone, but when you're on Zoom, like right now, right? I know this is also audio, but we're looking at ourselves, right? So there's a lot of mirroring of ourselves and that can trigger being self-conscious and overcritical. And you start to worry, what are people thinking about me? (laughs) What are they thinking about my environment? And so now you're taking up cognitive resources because that fear brain, threat brain is kicking up and getting activated and it's reversing blood flow from your higher order executive brain that's supposed to be warning off the um, distractions and, you know, being able to keep up with the conversation. And so we have to just be aware that there are forces taking place consciously and unconsciously that's contributing to how much fatigue we're also um, having. And, you know, looking at ourselves can also contribute to anxiety, right? It's called mirroring anxiety. And this is actually more prevalent in women on fatigue as well. So one of our leaders actually uses the function all the time and swears by it to hide herself in Zoom meetings where she doesn't see her own image. She just sees everyone else. Is that something that would help reduce the cognitive load if we did that? That is exactly right. I mean, kudos on you, (laughs) leader. Absolutely, because you're reducing a sense, right? So you can essentially ward off that unconscious criticism or worry. But also, since you are decreasing the visual, now you are increasing your ability to focus on the auditory, right? The language, the conversation without those other distractions. And I really want to challenge organizations and companies to not put the onus on the employee, right, with these Zoom meetings, which I do have, you know, a few solutions for everyone, but it's also the company's responsibility to maybe take the pressure off of showing up on camera, right? Does every Zoom meeting need to be on camera? Do you have to have so many Zoom meetings? Do they have to take so long? (laughs) 
do they have to be so frequent, right? So developing those type of policies and guidelines on Zoom meetings can help also to mediate Zoom fatigue. So what I'm hearing is I'm picturing in my brain just a big battery. And it, it feels like each one of those decisions can help influence how fast the battery drains, right? So obviously fewer meetings, shorter meetings, and thinking about, as you said, does the camera need to be on for all of them? Or can we get more strategic about when we really need to see each other versus when, say, a Slack huddle, which is just audio, would do just fine? Exactly. Or old school phone call, conference call, right? That could definitely help as well. So I think once people start to become aware of the impact of Zoom fatigue on productivity, on, you know, being able to manage emotions on top of everything else, I think people will be more open to making sure that Zoom meetings are more effective and not hindrances to the employee dynamic. This is interesting to think about. So I think about our company, which was remote pre-COVID and somewhat developed our normals, you know, pre-COVID, which was camera on most of the time. And for a small team, I think it worked. But it's interesting now that I think through your checklist of the five. So that was, say, defaulted to in normal times when that emotional fatigue was probably much outside of work was probably much lower. And now Mm -hmm. what that's not factoring in is that we've all, whether you've worked remotely or not, our lives have been upended by what's going on two years of, you know, disruption for a lot of Mm -hmm. folks in their family dynamics, Mm -hmm. in their social dynamics, in our exercise patterns, all kinds of things. And so even for those of us that were remote early, we've got to factor in the changing external conditions in how we think about how we set up our team members for success, acknowledging that that emotional load perhaps has changed over the years. Absolutely. I love you that you brought up uh, your company's example, because this is an opportunity. What the pandemic has unveiled about this human experience, about our work dynamics. But it also has revealed how more empathetic and compassionate we can be, right? Because we really didn't have to know that about our workers and employees as much, right? We really didn't have to be intentional. But this period has really got us more connected and allowed a lot of leaders to step into the role as a more compassionate and empathetic and understanding leader. And so if we add this dynamic of uh, Zoom fatigue, I think they can do so even more considering the evidence of neuroscience and what the brain is doing and the emotional brain and the executive brain. It's all working together. And depending on how we use Zoom could affect whether those Zoom meetings are effective or if you're the productivity of your workforce is productive as well. So you mentioned what companies can do, and I'll take that on as a challenge. What are some things that individuals can do to also decrease the likelihood of fatigue or help bounce back, however it's best to to think about that? Absolutely. So I think it's important to be able to distinguish how you're using Zoom. Like, We can use Zoom for meetings, right? I think most people use it for communication and meetings, but it's also being used for trainings, 
right? Learning. And so that takes a different level of brain attention and functioning as well, right? A different level of attention. So I think it's important for whoever's running the Zoom meeting really makes a distinction between is this a meeting versus a training? Because I think if you put it into that context, People will naturally fall into learning mode and attention mode, and it won't require that social interaction, right? Maybe they won't have as much of anxiety. Maybe pre-training, you can say you don't have to show your camera, right? So that takes off some more mirroring anxiety, right? But when it comes to, so that's one, to establish what the point of the Zoom meeting is for, meeting or training. And once you do that, there's something called asynchronous meetings or trainings, right? You don't always have to be in real time, (laughs) right? Because when we're in real time, we're managing all kinds of stuff, distractions, emotions, nonverbal cues, being so critical, all of that is coming up. But I think it's okay for the person who's running the meeting to maybe pre-record something, (laughs) and say, make sure you watch this, and then we'll debrief after that. And then that kind of gives people freedom to fit it in to their day to watch it, right? And so that can take off some of that Zoom fatigue as well. So let me recap those. So those are really two related but distinct elements. The first is if you're really going to have a Zoom, if you're decided you really need to have the meeting, get specific about what the meeting is for and what types of interactions you're expecting so that everybody knows, okay, yes, I'm a full participant or no, I can somewhat relax. I'm just watching. And if it really is that second category, just watching, think about whether it does need to be live or whether it could be, say, perhaps primarily recorded and then just a live discussion or something like that. Good point. Yes, okay, so absolutely. So don't just default to big meetings all the time. I love how you just summarize that. <laughs> and for those longer meetings, okay, sometimes we have to have longer meetings, planning meetings, you know, annual meetings, things of that nature. Spacing out the different topics, more frequent breaks so the brain can recharge and reset will be helpful. Reduce multitasking. It's so easy. <laughs> right? To have tabs open, to respond to your texts. But the brain is no good at multitasking or multi-minding. So there was a study done that our brains get reduced to the level of an eight-year-old, our IQ, when we start multitasking, right? So it's no good. It's a no-go overall. But we tend to do that more in these Zoom settings, which will affect our concentration and our comprehension of conversations. And then, of course, people don't want to admit that they didn't hear. So then we just fall you know, into a rabbit hole of feeling self-conscious and incompetent and all of that starts building up. So multitasking, if people can just reduce that, just focus on the task at hand, focus on the conversation, right? And that'll be easier to do if the Zoom meeting is more defined. Mm -hmm. If parameters are set up, if expectations are set up in advance, 
And the brain likes expectations. Remember, the brain likes certainty. That fear and threat brain calms down when we have certainty and know what to look for or what to expect. Okay. And so your leadership person already talked about, you know, removing your view. So you reduce that self-consciousness and self-criticism that can really happen a lot of times subconsciously. Mm. So you may not even be aware, but for some reason, you're feeling tense, you're feeling anxiety, you start shifting more, right? Maybe you start stammering and maybe your thoughts are not coming to you because subconsciously your threat brain is reversing blood flow from your verbal brain. (laughs) So you won't sound as coherent as you would like. We've covered some good ground. So I think a lot I've heard a lot from the company leadership perspective, some things that companies and leaders can do to help acknowledge and navigate this fatigue and set our teams up to experience as little fatigue as is necessary, perhaps if we word it that way, and to acknowledge for teams that have been remote prior to COVID and set our operating systems prior to COVID, thinking about that emotional toll that's now in addition and how we might factor that into our planning. And then on the team member side, it sounds like hiding ourselves, asking for expectations, you know, asking someone, you know, what's the goal of this meeting? What's the type of participation that would be ideal? And then the single tasking for team members to be diligent about when they're in a meeting, just focusing on that meeting. I think we're all guilty of maybe having a few two tabs open and, and not realizing that that depletes the battery faster. And perhaps more importantly, as you said, makes us dumber. So, <laughs> all right. <laughs> something to be said about being more engaged in our work, right? The brain loves deep engagement, right? Especially if it's according to your strengths and you believe in the mission of the company and you really want to make a difference. We need to honor that part of us who wants to be deeply engaged in the moment because really all we have is the present moment, right? And so we understand, a lot of us understand the importance of mindfulness, which is a big element is being present, right? And I think we just get so much more out of our experiences at work when we're deeply engaged, but we're also, we're still having that need for connection, right? So when we are really listening, like I'm really looking into Kendra's eyes right now, right? (laughs) You know, we're still able to get that inner fulfillment, meet that human need of connecting. And when we're doing other things and we're halfway listening and we're halfway focusing on someone, we're not honoring that person's input in that moment, right? And so we're not able to make the full connection that we really need to understand one another as humans and develop that empathy and compassion that we so need in organizations for this part of our human um, experience. And I do want to say one more solution, perhaps make those social, virtual events optional, (laughs) you know, because if people feel obligated, that's going to contribute to their negative view of this platform. Some people just need a break, right? Some people, their social battery is out, right? Maybe they're, it's during a time when their family or loved one, their dog or cat needs that moment. They just don't want to feel that pressure. So I think that is important to emphasize, like we're having a social event, We'd love for you to come. No pressure. It's optional, right? So something like that as well. 
Great point. Great point. Okay. So I've got one of your golden brains on my bookshelf. I've known about your passion for neuroscience for a long time, but tell us, how did you get here? How did you get so passionate about the brain and how it works? I love, if I'm going to get it right, I think your goal is to elevate human potential. How did you pick that? Yeah, so I've always been fascinated by the brain ever since I was a little girl. So when I grew up, I wanted to be a neuropsychiatrist. So I ended up studying about the brain, doing research on the brain, brain injuries, dementia. And so I was studying to become a clinical neuropsychologist so I can do more of that work. But what I found was I wanted to tell people more of what was going right with their brains and how we can amplify what's going on in our brains to reach another level of this human potential versus for 12 hours, I was testing people to tell them eventually what was wrong with their brains, right? So that really wasn't filling me up uh, professionally. It wasn't really striking me in my heart zone and in my strength zones, even though that work is super important. I still have really good friends doing that work. We all have to recognize what our strengths are. And one of the last projects I worked on was the mind study for the government. It was assessing brain injuries and PTSD in our veterans um, in Afghanistan and Iraq. And I was running the study. And what I found was the dynamics within the organization oftentimes affected the dynamics of the workers, of the employees, of the research team. And because of my background, I just started to see how is this impacting the emotional brain, the prefrontal cortex, right? And so I just really got into organizational psychology and then kind of switched gears from there. And I decided to do this work in organizations and teach. My mission is to empower 100 million minds on how to use the brain in a more powerful, effective way so that they can have better influence on those they are in contact with or leading or guiding or coaching. So that's how I ended up here. And that's how you ended up with a golden brain, Kendra. (laughs) I love it. I love it. It it reminds me of upstream. You know, we can either work on the downstream problems or we can go upstream and try to address more of the root causes and get those right and then prevent some of the challenges that follow. All right. Well, this has been fantastic. Let's open it up to our team and see if any of our team members have questions for Shantae. All right. Rachel's got one. Let's bring Rachel to the stage. Hi, Rachel. Hi, Shantae. This is really fascinating. Thank you so much for sharing all your insights with us. Absolutely. So one thing that I sometimes struggle with in larger Zoom meetings is knowing when is the right time to speak because I don't want to interrupt someone, but I also have something to say. So I feel like on Zoom, there's sort of an interesting dynamic there with the social cues and knowing when someone else is about to speak. So you don't want to interrupt them. Do you have any tips or best practices to sort of avoid this? And I feel like that also leads to Zoom fatigue because you're constantly just having to think about that so much. <laughs> See, they're learning. <laughs> yes, absolutely. Yeah, so that's definitely something real. And I would say to that, people are more understanding, I think, in this era. So if you do, I wouldn't overthink it. Like if you have something to say and you start to say something and someone starts to say something, I think you could just work it out in the moment and just give each other grace to do that. Or maybe you can put in the comments. Or, you know, use the feature of raising your hand or something like that. Optimize the features 
to be able to be next in line to speak. On the front end, that is really um, a huge responsibility of the person running the Zoom meeting. You know, this is how you ask a question, right? We have an assistant who's going to be monitoring the chats for questions and comments. Every now and then I'll stop the presentation and read some of your comments and we'll read out or answer some of your questions, right? And so the onus, like I always say, it shouldn't always be on the participant. It also has to be on the person, you know, putting on the meeting or company policy to set up those expectations. But overall, I just say people are understanding. We're still kind of fumbling and bumbling through how to optimize this platform and how to human better, right? How to communicate on this platform is still kind of foreign to us. We still have a long way to go. So I wouldn't overthink it. Awesome. Thank you. That definitely helps. I'll try that. (laughs) And I want to say women tend to, of course, beat ourselves up more than our male counterparts. But there was actually a study done on Zoom fatigue and gender differences out of Stanford and um, a university in Sweden. And they talked about how women tend to have longer Zoom meetings (laughs) than men and less breaks in between. And it, it tends to be more frequent. So just as women, I think we can cut ourselves some slack, okay, on so many levels, especially since, you know, a lot of what has um, been unveiled because of the pandemic has been on us, childcare, economic hardships and all of that. So that's why I preach giving ourselves grace, giving one another grace when it comes to interacting on this particular platform. Great point. A lot of that fatigue can be self-inflicted if we're not careful. Sebastian, I see you've got your hand up. Come on up to the stage. Thank you, Kendra. Hi, Shante. Hi, nice to meet you. Likewise, thank you. This is really awesome. I really appreciate the topic of conversation. My question, Shante, to you is in regards to what seems to be a hot topic right now, the four-day work week. Mm -hmm. And so I'm curious to know what are your thoughts of having a policy of a four-day work week on the overall well-being of individuals? Yes. Well, I think that the world has literally been turned on its head (laughs) because of this pandemic. I think companies are much more flexible and open to that type of work system. And it definitely can work. And it's been proven um, there's been companies, there's, I can't think of the top ones off of my head, but it's been something that is provable and can be done. I mean, if you think about nurses, right, most nurses will work 12 hour days, four or five times a week, right? Now for them, that's taxing, <laughs> right? Especially during the pandemic. I mean, I would actually want them to do shorter stints over many more days or a couple more days so that they don't get burnt out and over fatigue. But I just think it depends on the company and the type of work that's being done. So it can't be a one size fits all. I think that there should be someone to come in and kind of assess, can we have the same level of innovation and productivity? Are our employees being taken care of? Are they fatigued? Are they tired out? Are they unmotivated, right? You can take all these factors in and determine, is this this work period sufficient or not sufficient? 
And I think that's up to every organization to do that intentional work and really bring in the knowledge of their employees on this because they're the engine of that organization. So their input matters. So I think it definitely should be an individual organizational idea, but it definitely can work. But for some, for some realms, I don't think it works as much. Super. Thank you so much. You're welcome. Great, Great question, question. Mm-hmm. I see Emily has a question as well. Thank you. Hi, Shante. Hi, Emily. Hi. So my question is in regards to sort of the verbal and nonverbal cues that we receive when we're interacting with someone. I'm someone who reads a lot into facial expressions to extract emotion, and I feel like it makes me a better listener, triggers that caring and empathy. So I was just wondering what your advice might be for how I can better adapt, because I appreciate what you said about, you know, giving team members that space, you know, turn off their camera to have that rest. But how can I maybe better adapt to reciprocate that, continue to be an active listener and feel all those like that connection and also reciprocate that for, you know, my team members in those moments when my camera is also off or I might be more of a bystander in a video. Yeah, that's a great question. It's a loaded question, too. (laughs) Um, So just like I can see Rachel's picture and I can see Emily's picture and you're both smiling. Right. So I still get the feel goods. And in your voice, I can tell that you're engaged, that, you know, you're ready to go, that you're being attentive as well. So we don't necessarily always have to have live video, but a picture is enough for the brain to make the connection and say this person is engaged and attentive because we also have cues from our tone of voice, right? Our energy. So that's one thing, you know, make sure you're utilizing the picture aspect if you need it. Now, women are naturally more emotional, which is a superpower, by the way. I I don't want to get into it right now, but yes, we're actually, our brains are designed to be more emotional because we have more emotional real estate when it comes comes to processing emotions and nonverbal cues and that that was important so we can be able to make sure our offspring survives, right? Because our kids don't come into the world talking. So we have to be able to read emotional cues, nonverbal cues. And so since we are the primary caretakers, somebody has to be the primary caretakers. That's just how our brains are wired. So we have to lean into that. And it's also our superpower because we can then be empathetic and read the room, read the cues, read the energy of people and respond appropriately. And so we don't necessarily have to have the physical aspect of those nonverbal cues. Like I said, we can read your voice, right? The energy, the tone as well. So we naturally as women will not just read nonverbal cues, but we also exhibit a lot of nonverbal <laughs> cues a lot. So we're, we smile and we wear our emotions, if you will, or thoughts on our facial features. So that is over-exaggerated, ironically, on Zoom, okay, because we feel like we have to be extra (laughs) to show that we are paying attention, right? So I just want to challenge people not to be so extra, you know, because when we're in person, maybe we'll just do a nod to 
acknowledge what someone said. But on Zoom, we're like nodding like crazy all the time. And we're always expected to be looking at the person, whereas we're not able to shift our gaze or people will read the room, <laughs> read your nonverbal cues the wrong way or interpret it the wrong way. So once again, cut yourself some slack with these nonverbal cues that you use and reading of other people's cues. And women tend to remember more of what someone's wearing, what their background looks like. Like we're just taking it all in. And guess what? That's stimulation, stimulation that needs to be processed and it can cause mental fatigue. So it's actually a real key solution to turn off the camera, (laughs) you know, when you can, where you can to reduce that nonverbal communication. And remember, communication also takes place in the chat room, right? There's so many different ways to communicate. It doesn't always have to be in, you know, on camera. So we need to explore, companies need to be more innovative with how they use communication skills. I think this is an opportunity for even video platforms, right? To figure out, okay, this is a video platform, but how can we maybe have more of a balance to where the default is not video, right? When people come on, it it's not default live, right? Make sure people understand how to navigate the instructions and the platforms and all of that. So once again, the onus shouldn't be all on you, but you know, all of us collectively to try to figure out how to optimize this space. Excellent. Thank you so much, Shante. You're welcome. Thank you. Great questions and lots of background. And I also think lots of actionables for individuals and leaders and companies to think about how to apply this, at least some good brain food, so to speak, on how to move forward. Well, Shante, thanks so much for your time today and all of the time and study that you've put into what you share. I find it so, so interesting and helpful as a leader. So I appreciate you. Yes. And I'm so glad that you have taken the lead and you and your coworkers have taken the lead on addressing this because it is real. And I don't think a lot of people know it's real or how it's really impacting their work, their emotions and one another. Right. And I think we have to give one another more grace as we're navigating this new world and this platform as well. And, you know, just because someone is not looking at you or have their camera off, (laughs) we have to, you know, learn not to be triggered or make assumptions that a person is not focused or not working. So I think it's really going to allow us to be more human with one another and be more understanding. And of course, you know, have more compassion for one another, which we really need right now. I like that. To let us be humans better. Good way to sum it up. Do humans better. (laughs) Thanks so much. Thank you. Thank you for the questions, everyone, as well. I hope it served you. 